new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Uh, another beautiful day for podcasting and we get a chance to again talk with someone about their loss, their grief and any dreams that they've had uh, after their loved one has passed away. Today we have on Debbie Wabi and she is recently retired from 35 years as a dental assistant with Expanded Function in Northern California. She currently speaks about her experience as the mother of a heart and kidney transplant recipient and as a survivor of the wildfire destruction of her home and her town, Paradise. She is working on a book about this as well. Debbie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you today? I'm doing great. Obviously, we're here in uh, Canada, and uh, we got a lot of snowfall last night, which is uh, exciting, but also a little bit uh, like, okay, here we go again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here's winter for you, huh? There you go. But a good three feet. How is it in California right now? <laughs> I don't know if I want to admit it. It's like 70 degrees, and it's gorgeous. Oh, that's um, okay. It gives us hope. Today. <laughs> it gives us uh, a memory of what it used to be a month ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, Canada's beautiful, so I'm sure. So, Debbie, it's great to have you on. We just had your friend on the last podcast, actually, uh, Suzanne. And so she mentioned you and she mentioned a dream you had of her daughter. So I'm really excited that we get to have you on so soon and almost like back to back episodes to really further that conversation and also talk a little bit about donorship when it comes to that and your journey uh, with your daughter through that whole experience. But first, I want to know, what's it like to be retired? Because I just finished school. I'm just starting my career. So retirement oh. is next on my list of things to do. <laughs> well, right I, I actually, it's it's a new norm that I'm trying to develop, actually. It's really kind of crazy. I'm a very high energetic, very busy person. Um, my lower body, hips and knees, I've had issues with since I was a child. I was congenitally born with issues. So I've worked for 41 of my uh, 55 years. I really have. But so I'm too young to retire. But yet at the same time, I can't keep doing what I was doing. Um, so I'm kind of branching out into, uh, you know, speaking and doing podcasts and, and uh, doing what I can do to maybe give back to the donor situation too, the donor transplant donor mm. life. So what was it like for you to go through that? And can you give us a little backstory on, because it was your daughter, I believe. If I recall yes, my oldest child, my daughter, who's 33 now, when she was 19, uh, she her heart failed. Um, we went through several months of nobody realizing what was going on. And then finally, when it was diagnosed, it was pretty serious. Um, she almost died. Um, they managed to get her in a better health situation enough to get her to San Francisco, uh, care flighted her to San Francisco. And then from there for about six years, they treated her for heart failure. And she had been on and off the transplant list once and then put back on and then was transplanted six, about six and a half weeks after she was put back on the list. So it was kind of a wild ride there for about seven, eight years. So what makes someone go on and off? Like, why wouldn't they just stay well, on? Well, they, um, they actually got her into a healthier state with a pacemaker. They put a, a valve around or, a, yeah, I guess a, a, a leakage kind of uh, 
valve type thing replacement that helped her not regurgitate as much and have that backflow where you're not supposed to have. Um, and then, so she had the open heart surgery to have that. And then she had pacemaker done several times. Um, so they got her in a healthier state enough to actually take her off the transplant list for about three years. And then the pacemaker kept coming out. She's very thin. Um, she had no muscle muscle in the chest area. So it kept coming out, kind of trying to extrude, extrude from her body. And so they kept putting it back in. Well, the, the last time that they did it, it introduced uh, bacteria into the leads back into her heart and threw her back in full on heart failure. So then she had to be basically... Uh, healthy enough to go back on the list, which took several weeks. That stent in the hospital was about nine weeks um, to get her healthy enough to get her back on the transplant list. And then at this point, her kidneys had um, had started to deplete as a result of the medications that she had been on for the last six years. Anyway, so they got her back on the transplant list in, in July. And then in August um, is when we were called for the transplant. Debbie, what was it like uh, having your child die, almost die in front of you? What was that experience like? Uh, pretty crazy. <laughs> pretty crazy. Um, I, you know, I it, I never really accepted that idea. I kind of, the, the doctor had said to me, do you have other children? And I said, yeah, but this one's coming home with me too. <laughs> um, that was my attitude. And I never, I never let that wrap around my head that she would not either come home with me or be far into my future. I just didn't let that happen in my brain. I, every time I'd start to creep in, I'd throw it back out again. Well, you have a lot of hope. Oh yeah. She's going to get yeah. better. Yeah. You know, I just, I, like I said, I just, I, I never believed that that could possibly kill her. I just didn't let that happen to my brain. Um, there was a few times, you know, there was a few, few moments where I thought, Oh God, she's going to die. And I had some pretty profound moments that made me change that right back into my my half full kind of girl self. You know, I just, oh, yeah, this is what we're doing. I ran into an old man walking down a hall. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and I was walking down the hall in a hospital that she had recently been diagnosed in back when she was 19. This was forever ago. Um, and... The, there was nobody in the hall. And then all of a sudden, there's this old man sitting on a bench. There was nobody there. I was walking around crying, not, you know, walking around looking, though. And there was no one there. And then all of a sudden, there's this old man sitting there with a walker and an oxygen tank. I have no idea. I mean, he he there's no way he could walk fast. I know that for a fact, even though he was sitting on the bench. <laughs> I know that. And he saw me crying and said, everything's going to be just fine. And I don't know why that affected me like it did, but by the time I got back up to her hospital room, my eyes were dried and she she was crying when I got there. And I said, honey, you dry your eyes. We're not going to cry anymore. We're going to love the people we love and you're going to get better. And that was just kind of, that was probably four or five days after diagnosis originally. And I just had it in my head that from that moment on, it's like, yeah, everything is going to be okay. What are you doing crying? What are you doing thinking this? And, you know, that, and kind of from then on, she it, everything went in a better pattern. Wow, that's so interesting. So, what would you take that gentleman as? Uh, 
I really feel like minds have a lot to do with how, how things go. Your state of mind, you can have two people with the exact same diagnosis and one can go lay down in bed and die and the other one can decide to do some skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing and, and live seven years longer. Yeah, yeah. I um and and it seems like just from what, how you're describing it that you had a lot of resiliency and you know that parental kind of push like this my work's not done I need to continue and and it's almost like sometimes you hear those stories of like you know parents and people who have that type of obviously caregiving and love they're compelled to go in that direction because if they don't you know like you said you know you can make your own bed and lie in it and it can get worse, but you're like, no, this uh, has to be done. And, and, and your willingness to kind of, you know, both of you are willingness to get willing her to get healthy and work through this. Uh, and you were also still working as a dental assistant at the time, oh, right? Yeah, I was working. Wow. full time. Yeah, I was working full time. And so, raising yeah. your family. And raising. Yeah, I had a, a gosh, how old was Luke? He must have been eight at the time. So I had an eight year old, a 16 year old almost 17 and then the 19 year old daughter at the time. Wow. So yeah, wow. it was, it was quite interesting, but um, I, I have no idea where all my resilience came from, but I definitely have resilience and I definitely have um, inner strength. Did your daughter show that same resiliency or was she more, <laughs> was she a lot different in the sense of how she was expressing her own mortality? Um, at first, at first, I think she was just super scared. And I'm sure throughout this whole thing, she's been scared here and there. You know, I'm sure of it. I, I can't, I've even heard her say that before. But I think that she was willing to believe that she was going to survive enough to go in that direction. You know, and she didn't, she tried not to let her brain do that either. We had lots of discussion about that and about how your mind can totally take over, you know, a situation and make you either sicker or better. We had lots of conversation about that. I'm a firm believer in, like I said, you know, where your mind goes can take your body with it. So I, I, I don't know. I just, I think that she, she followed suit is basically what she did. You know, she, she trusted me for all the years that she trusted me so far. And I think she figured, <laughs> I think I'd rather follow her than, than the way my brain was going. Yeah, that can, yeah, and, and I can see that dynamic happening. Like she's your daughter. So, you and know, and, and close. yeah, mom's got an abundance of resiliency and trust and faith and support here. And, and I need that. She needed that. Right. And, and absolutely, we all need those type of situations. And, it, it makes you look at the opposite of like those people who are in those situations who don't have that. And it's like, Oh man, I wish those people did have those. those oh, it of, makes me hurt you know? for somebody yeah. who doesn't have. Yeah, it does. It's very, very hurtful to know that somebody could be in that same situation and not have somebody by their side cheerleading them on. Cause that's kind of what it is, is being an advocate and a cheerleader and, you know, making sure that, that when, they're giving her medicine. It was the, what they were supposed to give her all of it, you know, all of that. It was a little bit of everything. So she saw that I was totally involved and totally, uh, I can't even think of the word, but I was definitely, um, in it to win it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're there for there for her. hundred percent. Yeah, 100%. definitely. Definitely. 
And so what was it like to then find out you actually not only got a heart, but you got both the heart and I believe it was a kidney? Yes. Yeah. She had uh, the young lady that would, they probably wouldn't have done it um, to different people. They would have had to have had the same donor for both the heart and the kidney. So they had to wait for a viable, you know, for both of those. And where a lot of times when somebody's going to be transplanted, it's just one organ. And this person who's passed can have just literally that organ that's viable, where Teal ended up having, you know, several she gave a kidney to somebody else and her corneas, and she just happened to be a young, healthy, other than her epilepsy, she was a young, healthy girl and had viable organs to be able to save other people. And so Amra ended up with a, a kidney and a heart. Somebody else got her other kidney. So they had to have the same body in order for it to be a good match. And so was there like a... A celebration or was it just like you already had that knowing so just like yeah this is coming um as far as when she was transplanted yeah so when the surgery oh, was successful was <laughs> <laughs> somebody died you know and yeah. and having to having to have the realization of that and that somebody especially for me coming from the mom's standpoint somebody lost a child I'm gaining a child from somebody losing a child. That was hard to wrap my head around. Actually, you would think that I'd just be in some kind of celebratory, you know, I was, but yet at the same time, I was mourning for somebody losing their child. It takes a lot of self-awareness in the moment to realize that because, you know, you're on the list for so long and it's like, it doesn't really manifest itself until it happens that you write someone had to die for your child to live. And so was that anything that was, how do I put this? Was that something that you had to deal with that you weren't expecting of yes. those emotions? Yes. Originally when she was put on the transplant, it was just, Oh good. There's a solution. You know, that, that kind of thing. And then there's many, um, there's many ways when somebody has heart failure and that their heart's just not going to work for them anymore. There's machines that they can put people on and they have to leave, stay in the hospital. There's many options, but for, for her to have that as the option versus those other options was good. You know, so that was elating at the time. But then once you actually get the call, someone's actually passed away and you know that this is going to transpire. She actually said that to me on the way down there. She said, mom, somebody had to die. And so that her realization hit then too, on the way down there, literally on our drive down there. Wow. Yeah. It, that gets pretty real. Like you go, I'm trying to think, put myself in those shoes and say, mm, I wonder if I needed something and someone had to die for it. I think it would happen the same way as it happened to you guys where it would start to manifest. And I would just think about that person like, wow, they passed away. It's a living being. Um, exactly. And it's not, it's not just a movie or a TV show. This is real life. Well, um, and I ended up saying to her at the time, I said, honey, they were going to die anyway, but they get to help people. And that's a fabulous thing. You know, that's wonderful. And that's kind of where we left it right then. And the, Pretty much the rest of the car ride was pretty quiet. You know, we just mm. kind of melded on that. <laughs> yeah, know? that probably that probably definitely changes um, changes it. Whereas the, obviously they've agreed to have their organs uh, given, 
which, uh, you know, I'm just thinking the opposite. It wouldn't work <laughs> if you forced people. That would be terrible. But, but this situation, yeah, that, that you, you have the okay. Um, but it's still obviously sad and, and, you know, something you have to, you, you reflected on. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. And do you know, I don't know much about uh, donation organs in the States. So did Teal have to sign off on something before or was it her mother that agreed Her parents to were able to oh, make that decision. If you're not a donor on your, on your license here or your voting or however your state goes, you know, into the donor, you can register through donor networks. Um, but if you're not registered that way or through your driver's license, the person who is your, you know, whoever's making the decisions for you, your parents, your spouse, that person then becomes that advocate for you. And so is this why you do the talk that you do do? Is it to raise awareness for people to agree on their yes. license? Yeah. Yes. That and and to to allow the people who deal so far we've basically spoke to people who have um, something to do with transplantation. Like recently we spoke for the financier people, you know, people who deal with the financial end of it. There was some medical people there, but a lot of them were, you know, the people who make sure that the money's available for, you know, the people who are actually donating. And so they don't have a bill coming to them in the end of all that. And there's a lot of that, but they don't hear the, the, the real life, my daughter almost died. Her daughter did die scenario, you know, I mean, and the fact that we know each other and that we speak together and it's just a kind of a fascinating story. Her and I are very, very different from each other, but yet we managed to fit like peas and carrots. No, that's great. And I, uh, I'm happy that you guys did me. And I'm curious, how did that happen? Like, do I, cause I didn't think that they gave you the information of the individual who died. Well, um, you go through the, the donor network association have basically runs intermission and mediates for that. Both parties are allowed to write something, you know, wish contact, you know, just acknowledge the fact that they want contact. Um, and then it's up to, the other person, whether or not they want that. Mm. So it's, it's totally, you can totally do it, but it has to be agreeable to both parties. So this worked out really good that you both agreed. <laughs> and so well, we'll, yeah, they, yeah. they heard her father, Teal's father had actually written, written a letter to all the donors um, and sent pictures to, you know, say who she was and what she did. And my daughter had been, I bet you th she threw away 20, 20 letters that she had started thrown away, started thrown away. And until she got that, she wasn't able to actually put into words what she needed to put into words. And she wrote the most eloquent, beautiful letter to, to her family that I can't even read the first line without bawling. So I think it just, it just took a minute. I, I think it was over a course of about three or four years actually, before they actually connected. And it was actually five years before we met. So it, it took some time, you know, it took some time and it, and I think it's available to every single donor and every single recipient. It's just a matter of whether or not 
both people want to do that because some people are uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I can understand that. And I like how there is that mediation process, but I just never knew the process. So it's, I'm happy to get to learn a little bit more about what's involved with that and how people they're, can. They're can. a fabulous set of people. You know, the people who deal with um, any part of this, it takes a, a certain individual to be able to, you know, eloquently deal with this, you know, passing and, and hey, can we take their organs? And, you know, it takes certain people to be able to do that. It, it really does. And, and the people who are involved, I have not met one single person that isn't just a fabulous individual. That's amazing. It's amazing. You're meeting so many different people. I'm curious, what was it like first meeting Suzanne and her, so I don't know if her father was there too, but uh, no, what was no, that? No, it was, oh, yeah, it was, just, it was Suzanne. just Suzanne. Yeah. What was that like for you? Because did you have like emotions going in? Was it, was there any hesitation? No. Um, my daughter had asked me, you know, she said, Hey, I'm finally ready to meet them and we're going to go down and have my five year checkup, which is also close to where Suzanne lives. We had to go into San Francisco. We live about three and a half hours from there, but that's where we go for checkups. And, or while well, she goes now, I don't go anymore. But <laughs> anyway, uh, we were going to go for her five year checkup. So they made arrangements to meet and she wanted me to be with her. So that's how we ended up, uh, ended up meeting. It was a arranged thing that had been arranged for a month or two. Nice. And I'm guessing it went, it must have went well. <laughs> yes, we actually um, met at the beach in San Francisco where they um, where they strew her ashes. Um, we walked on that beach and visited for a while. So that was quite something to be on uh, at the ocean where her ashes were. And just it was very, um, very significant. And then we had dinner and um, we got to know each other a little bit better. And then after dinner, uh, Suzanne had her laptop and she pulled open her laptop and, and let us listen to one of the last recordings of her daughter singing. Wow. And all four of us just stood there and bawled. And, and my daughter actually said, I know her, you know, like I know her, I've seen this girl before. I know her. Wow. Um, and that was just amazing. Was it helpful in, in kind of, maybe adding to the recovery and healing uh, of uh, your daughter and yourself and your family through that process. I, I would imagine it would add to the narrative because now you see faces and you're hearing the voice of the individuals who helped um, um, and Teal, obviously. I think for a minute in time, it crushed me because, you know, the realization that that poor girl, you know, it just... Yeah. That was bad for me. Um, That's tough to see no matter what. You know, you see a, a oh mother. Oh, my God. She's a, she was yeah. a beautiful young lady that had so much to give and offer. Yeah. Um, was there a bit of guilt, actually? No, I think yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and still probably a little because Suzanne's so strong and she has just been through so much. So I have you know, mixed feelings about yeah. not anymore necessarily because her and I have come to pass, you know, without any, any of that I've moved on from, from the guilt. And now I appreciate the fact that her mom shares this with me and that I share with her. And it, I think it helps her heal a lot. 
and I'm totally game if that's what that does. Yeah, I, I yeah, I would imagine. And and she seems obviously she was obviously receptive to meeting you guys and doing all that. And and yeah, you could you could see maybe that that would add to her healing as well in, in that capacity. Wow. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's I not it does. We talk about that. I ask her, you know, does it does it help you? And she said, absolutely. It continues to be therapy all the time. My relationship with her, she doesn't have a whole big relationship with my daughter. We've met, she's had dinner, you know, we've, we've done a few things and they, you know, connect once in a while. But my relationship with her is the closeness to, to her daughter. Mm. Interestingly enough. Yeah, it is interesting. And I, I heard a rumor on the last podcast that you've even had some dreams of Teal. Actually, yes, I have. Um, not for a while. I think I did the other night, but like I said, I sleep so terribly that unless I'm kind of in tune to it and kind of thinking about it a little bit, it's caught me off guard before, but she actually told me that I need to work with women in the, in that state of almost being awake. It was like I could see her plain as day. It was her smiling at me, telling me that I need to work with women, that um, basically that I needed to change my life to help myself and to help her mom. I got a couple different messages from her a couple different different times over a span of about three months. Dream, I guess, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, it was very odd to me because I, other than my parents, I hadn't had anybody intervene with me after life like that. And so I didn't know, you know, her and I didn't know each other. My connection to her is her mom. So it was very odd to me that she would you know, come knocking on my door <laughs> kind of thing. I thought it was very odd, but it was very real too. At the same time, it was, she was in my dreams. Definitely. No, I think that's like really amazing to hear because you're right. You didn't have this bond with her, but yet there she is in your dreams, like giving you advice on like things you need to do in your own life, not only for her mom, but also for yourself. And so at that time when you're having those dreams, what was it that you're going through that this was going to provide that extra sense of meaning? Well, uh, for one thing, we were getting ready to do, I was kind of contemplating whether or not I was going to do the speech um, and speak and, you know, kind of get involved with this whole process. I was in turmoil a little bit about that. You know, what, what do I really have to offer kind of thought process? And then I had a full-time job at the time that was just kicking my butt physically, leaning over patients, you know, for hours at a time. It doesn't seem like it would be that big of a deal, but it it is to your body after 35 years of it. You know, so I was going through what can I do different to make the kind of money that I make that, you know, can sustain my life. I'm not I don't want to retire, retire, but I definitely need to get out of what I'm doing. So I was going through a lot of a lot of different things at the time. So she was kind of kicking me through it, really. <laughs> Oddly enough. No, I think that's funny because we get guidance in sometimes the most mysterious ways and most interesting ways to lead our path. And it's kind of amazing. Sometimes they come through dreams. And so yours did. So did you have any more dreams after that of Teal? Or is it just that first initial 
you making that decision to do the talks and um a little bit after that i remember having and as a matter of fact suzanne and i were just talking about this the other day and it kind of made me remember she took notes while i was talking to her about this and i have yet to see these notes because i don't remember i told her like the next day things that she told me and suzanne didn't give me the notes I was, you're gonna have to give me the notes because i don't remember what i told you <laughs> Well, it's a dream, you know, and it, and when I do it right away or write it down and she's so good about taking notes that she wrote it down. And so I remember some of it, but I know she told me that her and I were both Sagittarius and that, that she understood me because of that. Oh, and then the other day, Suzanne and I were talking and I said, oh yeah, Teal and I had that conversation. She told me that we're both Sagittarius and she said, what? And I said, oh Yeah. That was a while ago. And, and so things like that just kind of crop up. Oh, yeah, I did dream about that. It's interesting. Dreams are interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Do you like look at horoscopes a lot? Like, is that? No, no, oh, no. It's just, no. <laughs> it's just... I wonder uh, if did, did Teal, do you know? Probably. Yeah. She oh, was, okay. Um, she was, yeah, she was into spiritual guides and horoscopes and she was into that a lot. Oh, so that's really wild that it's part of her personality that was coming through not just your personality because you didn't really care, I guess, but it was like more her and it's like a little bit of a joke at the same time. It was, it, yeah. it was, it was like, Oh, here's her humor too. Yeah. So exactly. That's so. amazing. No, I think it's great. And I'm glad you share them too. Cause I can only imagine the healing that that gives Suzanne to hear well, this I stuff. Think, yeah. I would think. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it was the oddest thing. The first time I told her about it, I said, you, you're going to think I'm loon, but this is what's going on. And she's like, I do not. She's been around me too. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Cause on, uh, the other, like on our, when she came on the podcast, she had like a thousand dreams that she was sharing. I was like, wow. Like most people don't have that many, but she was all into it. So it's great that you opened up because it, it was definitely part of her life that she could connect with. Well, yeah. And, and when I told, she hadn't really told me much about her connection that way a little bit. She told me a little bit about, you know, how she's kind of felt her presence and that kind of thing, but never enough that I would just, if I hadn't had that dream, I would have never discussed that with her, you know, probably, but because I had that first dream and went, you know, Teal came to my dreams last night, you know, kind of thing. And then she started sharing with me the things that she has, has had happen and dreams that she's had. I think that's the beauty of just opening up about these experiences that you have, because you don't know what it's going to bring about in conversation wise with the people in front of you and what kind of dreams they've had and experienced. And it's just, True. that's why I love the podcast and asking these questions because most people don't ever get a chance to share them or talk about them. But here we are and it's like how I'm so fascinated with it and how it can bring people together in different ways and bring healing in different ways and continue that bond. Definitely, definitely. It keeps her, it keeps her here. So, so what was it like entering into let's call it your new career almost and uh how are you i guess fulfilled differently than your old career well kind of started back with a year ago a couple days ago when the campfire took place and my house burnt down and my job went away mm -hmm. um 
that kind of kind of started the snowball of effect. Um, I did go back to work in his temporary office afterwards, but it was just evident that my body couldn't do it anymore. So I ended up, you know, probably five months into it, I guess I ended up, I've been out of work since I've been off work since May is when I decided I needed to retire and move on. There was a lot of political stuff going on in the office that I didn't want to, you know, it was just, no, yeah. I don't need this. It seemed like, this. Yeah. It seemed like the right time for you to kind it of was, switch gears. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like you said earlier, the body takes, you know, these movements and joints, these things after a while, it takes its toll. Um, you know, my dad worked a uh, job for 30 years, his knees, he's got problems with it and this and that. And uh, you were saying like your hips and knees and, and, and whatnot, but it must have been, um, you know, obviously something you needed, you know, the fire happened, but it also kind of allowed you to switch gears or forced you to switch gears almost. Yes, it did. And, and it's, and I'm okay with it now. You know, at first I was like, wow, this is a punch in the nose, but, but it seems like that's just kind of how things go. <laughs> Life yeah. storms just kind of punch you in the nose. Yeah, and and you had the resiliency to to move move on from those. What was it that it gave you that was different um, from your old career? Well, now I have freedom to do what I want to do. You know, now I can I can pick and choose what I want to do, and you know, I'm not financially strapped. So you know, I planned accordingly. As far as uh, it's a little earlier than I planned on being off work, but I still mm. planned accordingly, and you know, for the last several years, been planning to retire. 10 years from now, but I'm still, and, uh, if you ask my honey, my, my worst experience day of my life was the best day of his. Cause I moved in with him. <laughs> <laughs> Why was it the worst day of your life? <laughs> you like your freedom, eh? Yeah, next to someone who snores. <laughs> I was exactly, exactly. I was, uh, I was in Cancun with him when the fire took place. So I wasn't home. Um, my dog was with somebody, so she wasn't home either. And the night before the fire, we kind of talked about, Hey, maybe this next spring, you know, maybe we could, you know, think about moving in together and that kind of thing. And then the very next day, the whole town of paradise burnt down and he didn't tell me about it until way later in the day. I didn't have any kind of news media. I didn't have anything with me. I was snorkeling, you know, I was playing. And uh, finally he said, you know what, everybody on this boat knows, but you and uh, the whole town of paradise burnt down. And then about five minutes later, our plan has moved up. <laughs> sure. So you want to move in with me when we get back? Well, I don't have a thing. So sure. <laughs> wow. I'm actually really interested in understanding what that's like to go through. To like hear about not only that your house is burnt down, but your town and all your friends that in the houses that have you've come to to know. Like, what was that all like for you? It's still kind of crazy. Um, I went up there, oh, probably about a week ago, and uh, just drove around and went to. Uh, as a matter of fact, I I went up there with Suzanne, so it's been a little longer than a week ago. She wanted to drive up there because of her book. She wanted to add that into it. So we drove up there and drove around and we went to the property and and oh my goodness, it was just still it's just still so surreal that I still think did that really happen? I mean, it just seems so 
I don't know. It just seems so bizarre that that could just happen like that, that a whole town could burn down and, you know, 18,000 homes and 52,000 people. And it just seems so out there that that could happen. Um, I had things, uh, antiques, um, my mom's letters, my children's photo albums. I was the keeper of the stuff, you know, so... So that was, that's the bummer part is that, you know, that I don't have my mom's things, but other than that, I'm just glad I wasn't home. And I'm glad I do not have the memories that everybody that I know that live there have from driving out of that inferno. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a thing that we, you know, I think most of us, well, let's just speak for most of us where we were, we North America. It's tough to kind of wrap your head around it because those type of things don't happen very often so and usually not to you so it's always a little bit like you're seeing it on the news or you're you sure. know, seeing it on the news like oh you know look at those fires but you're you know when you like you describe when you're living it and breathing it it's, it's it's still a shock it's still like wow can't believe this has gone on was it was it difficult kind of losing the stuff or do you have mixed feelings about it um, like I said, only my mom's things and my kids' pictures, little notes that my kids wrote to me that told me how fabulous I am that I'll never see again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never have one of them write that again until I'm maybe almost dying. Oh, you're the fabulous person. <laughs> I got to force them. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I want. <laughs> you know, when they're seven, they think you're great. Yeah. <laughs> so, but other than that, um, I um perfectly i'm i'm okay and i didn't have to like i said i don't have those horrid memories of of driving through flames thinking i wasn't going to make it through yeah. i don't have that and i feel very very blessed and grateful that i don't uh, and it, what was it like cause what was in your mom's letters that you cherish so much because your mom uh died previous to that right yeah, she died in 08 and yeah, and uh, the fires in 18, so 10 years later, actually. Just my mom, same thing, you know, just would write to me because we lived several hours away from each other at any given time during during her life. And up until the last two years, she actually moved to paradise to be closer to me and ended up passing in paradise, like I said, in 08. So... It, I don't know, just the her handwriting, <laughs> something silly like that, you know, just her handwriting that told me that, you know, she missed me and that, I don't know, it just, just that, just the, just the idea that it was something that she wrote. Yeah, very unique, very intimate, unique, and not, you can't replicate it. it, it no. is, I'm trying to think of what I would miss if my house burned down, what would I miss? Well, my son had evacuated from Reading from the car fire about three months before, and it made me kind of gather things together. And I gathered those notes, my kids' pictures, and I made probably about a oh, two-foot square box of, of all these things, uh, files, pig slips, all this stuff that I thought, you know, I need to be prepared in case I need to do this too. You know, fire season's not over and I should just do this anyway. Well, that box was in the corner of my bedroom <laughs> had my mom's glass uh, yeah. in it, all kinds of stuff in it. Yeah. So, but I, so I had forethought to do that, but it didn't do me any good because I wasn't there. 
yeah, just 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 happened, right? Just just yeah. they come they quick quickly. Fires come very quickly, and and you didn't know you're on vacation. You're thinking about something else, thinking about moving in with your boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. <laughs> well, actually, he was thinking about it more than me, if truth be told. <laughs> so, how is it now? I don't now like that you my little house. <laughs> how is it now that you moved in? Oh, fine. We're good. It's good. Yeah. He doesn't snore too much. Um, I sleep with uh, sleep things in my ear to listen to sleep music. Oh, that that's very good. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and they're little soft little earbuds that don't bother me, and I just turn music on. And the dog snores. He snores. You know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the dog snores louder. Oh, man, that's funny. So yeah, it's but interesting. I I'm sleeping anyway, so I do that just to at least not have that be part of the reason I'm not sleeping because I don't want to wake up mad. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> So I'm, yeah. my own internal thing that's making me not sleep i can only be mad at me <laughs> he's he wakes up well rested turns over you're just angry <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly because he can sleep through anything on a rock yeah it's so well i'm looking i'm thinking too sean about you know just what i would miss you know in case of a fire and stuff and the the writing and it's interesting interesting that i don't have like my mom never, or dad, like people don't write me letters anymore. It's not something that I, I have. It's all emails or, you know, voicemails would call or text more text messages than anything that oh, I have now. So I it'd be like, I wonder if you were so curious. <laughs> yeah. Cause if my, maybe my phone, if it burnt or something, then I would lose all that stuff, which would be the similar thing. But yeah, like I just don't have that. I think when my dad died, was it 11 years ago? I only had like really one thing that he wrote me and it was basically when I was a kid and he said, basically take care of your sister. Um, love dad. And like, that was really it. And I still have that, but I didn't really cherish it until like later on, but I didn't have full letters or anything. So just interesting how the times have changed on how we communicate. And even like, you're right. The, the, how people write is meaningful because you can tell they're writing over someone else. Oh, definitely. Her handwriting was significant over anybody else's. And her sisters, funny enough, um, I just was in Minneapolis giving a speech with uh, Suzanne, and I have relatives in Wisconsin. So I went ahead and stayed a few days over and visited. And I came across my aunt's writing, and it looked a lot like my mom's. And it made me realize that so when I got home, instead of emailing, I sent an actual card that had my handwriting in it that that she totally appreciated because of that era, you know? Now, I could email any one of my friends and they'd be fine with it. But for her, I know that that handwritten card made a huge difference to her. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I, I am old enough to remember writing letters myself. <laughs> Love letters to women. But, um, <laughs> you know... It, it, there's a it, there's an intimacy there. There's a there's a thing there, and even photographs. Like we don't process photographs the same way as we used to. Like you know, I have a ton of old pictures and stuff like that. You know, you have the reels, you have the negatives, and and if you lose those, you know, I'm not going to get any more new photos of you know all the relatives or whatever my family. You know, and, and those are the only things that you can't really replace. Like. That now that I think about it, there's nothing else. I got clothes, whatever. Go ahead, computers doesn't matter. 
Um, yeah, the clothes was fun. I got to buy clothes and boots and shoes. <laughs> that part was okay. I didn't bother. That didn't bother me at all. <laughs> For a while there, Amazon and uh, American Eagle was coming every day. <laughs> was there one item of clothing or accessory that you really miss? Maybe a favorite hat? Yes, I yes, actually funny that you mentioned a hat. It was uh from Alaska. It was my uh fly fishing hat. I don't uh, fly fish, but it was a fly fishing hat and those are cool. And it was yeah, it came from Sitka, Alaska and it was just the coolest hat. So yeah, I that, that's something that I miss. And so I'm curious, have you ever had a dream of your old house or any of those letters or anything like that? Since I had a dream of because funny enough, the day that I left to go to Cancun, I walked back in the house and oddly enough, I took a panoramic scan of everything. You know, you don't, I didn't just walk out of the house, lock the door and just go. I, I went back in for something like, you know, just some personal item I went back in for. But when I went to go leave, I stopped and just took a panoramic view of the whole you know, just the, not that it was big or anything, but just like looked at everything weirdly enough. And then I shut the door and I have a dream of doing that once in a while. Oh, that's so interesting. Every once in a while, like every, th during the last year I've had, I bet probably two or three times, some version of me looking at everything and shutting that door. Are those comforting when you wake up? I'm curious. That's I've never um, heard of that. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not um I'm not stuck on any of that. You know what I mean? I'm not stuck. A lot of people that I know that were in that situation because they drove through it and everything, they're more they're more stuck in that than I am. Um I was gone. I didn't have to, you know, be part of the evacuation. I didn't have to be, you know, part of that for at least three days. I didn't come home for three more days after that. And it was real smoky and everything. And my stuff was gone, but it was not the realization like how everybody I know that drove through there has. And so I don't know if it's just that I'm a really resilient, strong person or if it's because of that. Either you, way, I have moved on and I'm fine. Is it in interesting or exciting for you to get new things and maybe start to collect new memories and, and stuff? Well, it's funny because my, my son has, um, I have a grandson and then he also raises her daughter um, and she's learning how to write. And she wrote me a little note saying, Nana, you know, I love you or whatever. And, and I kept that. And it's funny because it's, you know, for her, I told her the other day, I still have it. And she said, I don't even know, you know, looked at me like, I don't even know what you're talking about. It didn't mean anything to her, but I will hang on to that because it's like the only piece of paper that I have that anybody's written me anything. <laughs> so I have it and I'm not going to let go of it. I'm going to keep it. So I, I think so. I think that in a way it's like, starting, you know, starting anew, starting fresh. Um, yeah. I have lots of pictures already that I've taken over the last year. And um, I printed some pictures that I already had on my phone, you know, just things like that. So um, sometimes exciting, sometimes sad. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously people, you know, people really love their stuff. And it, um, it almost becomes like, 
a legacy for them. Like you hear stories of, you know, elderly people or people dying on their deathbed and they're giving away things and maybe they mean a lot to them, but maybe not so much to their relatives. But I think that like, maybe there's an element of fear of like, in your situation, you have, you don't have all that. Like, will people remember me? Like I, I'm, it's almost like I've been, you know, in a way, if you remained in Cancun, that trace of where you lived and everything's gone. And so is there like a little bit of maybe melancholy tinge of sadness there about that kind of transfer of legacy almost? Yes. Yes, definitely. Because I always thought, you know, got, you know, not always, I very seldom thought about dying and still don't think about dying, but I think once in a while, well, if my kids went through my house, they'd find this, you know, they'd see this and it would make them happy that I still had this or whatever. Cause I narrowed it down over the years. I, you know, my box of kids stuff got smaller as time went on um, just because I didn't want to hang on to every crayon, you know, mark on a piece of paper and you know, that kind of thing. I got to where I was like, okay, you need to go through this stuff and, you know, and narrowed it down to a fairly small box. But I always thought it would be really cool for them to go through that box and they don't have that box now. Yeah. Well, you have a lot of years left to kind of build that new, right? You know, you have a new legacy you got to start working on. I'm curious, who would you have given that fly fishing hat to? Uh, my, my middle child, my son. No. Have you bought a new one since? Uh, I bought one hat since, but not a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it's funny because I've been to Oregon, <clears throat> Idaho, Minneapolis, and Wisconsin all in the last probably six, eight weeks. And I didn't buy a hat anywhere, which I usually do, which was kind of funny. So I usually buy a hat everywhere I go. And I had a, quite a collection of them. And it's almost like, no, I don't want a big collection anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, have you ever had a dream of your parents since they yes. they died? Oh, you have? Yes. Uh, not so much anymore. My dad, I had this really weird dream. And I was like, very convinced that it actually happened. Shortly after my dad died, I had a very vivid dream that he had changed the radio station in my car to a station that I don't listen to and had don't uh, dedicated this song to me. And it played this whole song. And it was like a song that, that him and I had listened to when I was a kid, you know, so it was a very significant song. And uh, when I woke up, it felt like I had just heard the song and that it was all very, very real. Um, other than that, I had only had a few, just very, very brief, like sightings of my dad in dreams, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And with my mom, um, gosh, I had lots of dreams with her, but, um, mostly I would dream about, um, calling her after I got off work and having these vivid dreams of our conversations. I would call every day when I would get off work and, and, my my goal was to make her laugh because my stepdad had told me at one point that I was the only one that made her laugh. So I would um, aim to do that every day before I hung up. And once I got a couple giggles out of her, I would hang up and, you know, call her the next day or see her or whatever. But I had dreams about having those conversations and they were very, very real. Like I just had a conversation with her. It was I was probably talking in my sleep even. Oh, those are so interesting. Yeah. I uh did you get a chance to hear her laugh? Yes. 
Yes, that was the that was why it was so real to me because I heard her laugh and I and I like had this whole conversation that I didn't even really have with her before that still made her laugh. You know, it was like not even like a repeated conversation that we had. It would be like this whole other conversation. But my goal was still to hear her little giggle and then I'd be okay. Okay, I got to hear her laugh today. That's pretty sweet. I like that. No, it's uh, we forget like hearing people like just like everyone has like their own writing style. Everyone has their own kind of laugh, too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and and now when I try to think of her laugh, I have a really hard time and it bothers me that I can't. So it's almost like I need to have one of those dreams so I can hear her laugh, you know, <laughs> maybe yeah. I will in the next few nights now. That's right. Hopefully it'd be, be cool if you could record your dreams. So then you would only need the one dream and then you just replay it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> do you uh, remember what our, do you remember what song that your dad played for you? Yeah, it was Cotton Jenny by Ann Murray. Oh, nice. Isn't that but, funny? Just an old, old song. You probably don't even know who Ann Murray or Cotton Jenny is. Isn't she Canadian? But I do remember the song Canadian. and that was what the one it was. Snowbirds, Ann Murray. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, music is special, right? And and now, you know, you have that kind of moving forward where hopefully if you listen to that dream, well, definitely you're going to think about your father. Sorry, if you listen to that song, you're definitely going to. Oh, uh, yeah. Every time father. I, even in a grocery store, I'll hear it and it just, oh, hi, dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice. Wow. So uh, you have a lot of different dream experiences just throughout. And I think that's very interesting. And they seem to be more or less comforting in different ways. And you give guidance or laughter or music. You have like a little bit of everything. I do. Actually, I do. I do. Which is nice. Hmm. And so since you've had so many dreams, uh, we still got to ask the question. So what dream would you want to have tonight, if you could, of someone that has died? It would still be my mom. It would be my mom. And I would want to know um if she uh, my biggest question would be to somebody who passed is do you get to meet up with the souls that you knew (laughs) do do you get to see people that you knew you know even if it's just a a you know twinkling or you know hey i know you even though you're not in human form anymore i i would want to know that because there's a couple of her friends that have passed and my dad and her parents and it would be kind of neat to know if if they got to connect somehow. Would you just want to know a yes or no, or would you want her to explain? Everything? Oh, I want to explain. <laughs> <laughs> we got to know in detail. Now that I on. have her on the line. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I would want to know in detail. What do you, what do you talk about? What do you do? Do you get to drink tea? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a great question and it's at the heart of uh kind of what it means to be human is is the are those connections are those things you know it's not the stuff it's it's the people you're around and we all i think a lot of us kind of have that thought in our head like hmm these connections are so important to me this love is so important to me i wonder if i'll be able to you know have it again um and i that's the mystery right it is the mystery for sure and and having those, like you said, you know, the things, the things that you have aren't, aren't as important as the connections that you have by any means. And, you know, the, the connections 
sure you take pictures, sure you have a little hat, sure you have this and that, but the people that I feel very fortunate that the people in my life, I mean, I have a good group of people that are, are supportive and I try to be supportive of them. And I, you know, my kids, I have a grandchild now um, that comes running towards me that, you know, wants to jump up in my arms. And I think that's just the, the apple of the whole deal. <laughs> it's like, you know, just coming around to, to knowing that I raised three children that, that are all productive and, you know, great in society and they're, you know, doing well and that the legacy, you know, goes on because I have grandchildren and it's just, it's just a really neat, neat experience to have love and family and people, just people. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I just want to say thank you. You know, we're going to wrap up here, but thank you so much for the work you're doing for organ donation. Uh, you know, it's a message that needs to be told uh, to really help uh, people like us who don't know too much about it and uh, understand it more so that, you know, we do understand how much it helps people, how significant it is. And, um, you know, moving forward, who knows, right? Well, we're all terminal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're all dying. terminal. So Every if you can dying, do something yeah. with it, great. Yeah. And I might need an organ someday or Joshua, God forbid, but you know, those things might happen. And and to know that there are people like you and the courage that you've shown in, in reaching out to the family, Teal's family, and, and to get to know her, you know, that takes courage. That takes a, a lot of love and compassion. And, and that shows a lot of resiliency and again, what you went through and how you describe it is is really um, interesting to hear. You know, you seem like a a logical person who who's got a lot of love and resiliency and courage. And you've obviously given that to your family, and um, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, well, thank you, Debbie. Again, it's it's been an um, amazing show and really interesting to hear your life story and, and and what's gone on in your life and how you've overcome some of those things along with your daughter. Um, so, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. Uh, if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Uh, and we are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams and at the Grief Dreams Podcast. And with love and gratitude from us to you. Just myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.